Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. We're reading John Caldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on chapter 17. Chapter 17, Dismasted. When I awakened, it was daylight. I didn't waken because I had slept enough or because the daylight had caught my eye. Not 48 hours of sleep would have been enough. Not a searchlight could have disturbed my profound sleep. I wakened because of Pagan's sudden change in behaviour. Her pitching and rolling became sudden beyond what I had ever felt before. She inclined to flatness on both beams and pitched so high that it seemed incredible she didn't jerk her keel off. I thought at first my boat must be turning over and over, but I could see the overhead remain near where the overhead should be, and I tried to explain to myself what was happening. Most perplexing was the absence of the storm's noises. I had passed out with the hurricane shrieking in the rigging. Now, aside from the wash of water in the bilge, a pounding on deck, and an occasional swish of sea, there was little else. Strange. The combination of quiet and violence scared me. Unbinding my lashings, I wavered to the hatchway, barely able to keep off the plunging bulkheads. I opened the hatch doors a foot and pushed my eyes above the cabin. I saw a vast circle of foam upshot with rearing cones of water, but not a breath of air stirred. There were no rollers or combers as such, only peaks of water shooting up and falling away flatly. Instantly I knew I was in the lull of the hurricane, which is to say the airless central circle around which revolve the cyclonic winds. Pushed into this diabolic arena were thousands of wind-churned seas sent from countless directions to collide and intercollide. I don't know how to explain it unless I suggest that you visualise yourself on a crag surrounded by numberless other such, then, at a given signal, they resolve themselves to liquid and each sets upon the others as would hunger-crazed beasts. As far as I could see, Great pyramids of water bolted masthead high from the sea surface. Here and there, great cross seas crashed into them, dispersed, reformed, and crashed again. Pagan lay to her scuppers beneath a constant deck of water. Her sea anchor was helpless. She danced at all points of the compass, her mast scoring the water on either side. Suddenly she was high, and suddenly she was low. Nausea assailed me. The sickening surge of the boat and the unstable watery sight set me to vomiting. I couldn't hold myself up any longer. I stumbled into my bunk and lashed myself down. I realised that I should get up and pump the bilges, also plug the broken porthole, but I was too dead sick to move. I couldn't even brace myself against the lurch. I just lay there, rolling against my lashings. All morning, my head spun as the jaunty craft threatened to fall apart. Not once could I sleep, even fitfully. I lay listening to the noises. I was nervous to distraction as to what could happen to my boat in this constant, violent, rough and tumble. Early in the afternoon, I nosed into the outer circle of the hurricane. Once again, the rigging dinned with the howling winds. This time, the wind had shifted into the south and my bunk was on the windward side. One inch of tired oak planking, only a span away, stood between me and disaster-crested seas. Most of the time I was tilted high in the air with the other bunk below me at the bottom of the slanting deck. 
Water was overtopping the decks and sloshing through the smashed porthole. It wet me down, refreshed me, eased the seasickness a little bit. I was still trapped in the bunk. The seasickness was pacified by the more consistent motion of the boat. Now that the wind set upon her again, there was a system in her wild behaviour that was kindred to my experience. From where I lay, I could hear the bedlam of wind in the rigging, could feel my boat wince before each header. The furiously whipped seas were snarling across the decks like packs of wolves. Because of water slopping through the porthole, I got up and stuffed a pair of pants in the opening. I realised that while I was up, I should go out on deck and cut free the boom which, flying at the end of the topping lift, was smashing at the stern end. Also, the bilges needed pumping. But remembering my narrow escape on deck, I reasoned that the threat of boom and wet bilges was naught compared to the risk of venturing in the open. I remained in the safety of my wet bunk and tightened the lashings over me. Again I waited, listening. The process of riding out a hurricane in a small boat is terribly nerve-wracking. It's the sense of futility you feel in the face of imponderable odds. The hurricane is supreme master, and you, its trifle, a cork in a tempest. There is only one safe way to ride out a hurricane on a small boat. Flat on your back, lashed in the bunk, with ports and hatches dogged and everything strapped down. But lying there straight-jacketed to a mattress is depressing. You always wonder what's going on in the rest of the boat. You wonder if somewhere a leak is breaking or a repair needs attention. To keep the boat under constant examination is too bruising a job. The prospect of overseeing things on deck is taboo, positively taboo. So I pass the long jolting hours in my bunk, waiting and determining Pagan's condition from a distance. The fact of Pagan's years, the fact that she still had her original wood, this was the reason I listened the more intently. She was too old to be bucking to a hurricane and this thought was cropping up more and more in my mind. Another concern which accosted me was my life raft. It had been trailing astern since the start of the hurricane. When I was last on deck, I had caught a glimpse of it wallowing to its gunnels in the angry froth. But that had been during the lull when I was sick. I could only hope it was still there. If not, I had nothing to escape in if trouble came. I thought of going to the deck to look for it, but I didn't figure it was worth the risk. There was nothing I could do if I needed it but go out and look for it. If it wasn't there, well, that was that. How many hours I lay there, straining at my lashings, waiting for some indication that the storm was abating. I don't know. Night came. More hours dragged. The hurricane was 24 hours old. It laboured on to somewhere near 30 the same violent jerks of the boat, the same roaring wind, crashing sea, clatter of dislodged gear and slosh of a water-filled bilge. In the wee hours of the morning of September 7th, after two days of storm, hard luck struck. My first recollection that something was amiss came when Pagan broached to and refused to round up into the wind. Great seas were ramming against the beam and combing athwart the decks. She scudded before each tumbler, creaking loudly and inclining more than usual. She lunged as though filliped by a mammoth finger. It was punishment beyond what my boat could take for long. I unbound my ropes and took a look outside. It was the same wild world as ever, a sea blown to windrows, heavy curlers boarding the decks, volleys of spray flying around my ears. 
pagan, yawing at the will of each disjointed sea and wind. I could tell without seeing that the sea anchor was gone, evidently chafed at the bobstay. I was thinking of something I could use to replace it. Somehow, my boat must be made to face up into the wind. Only a sea anchor could make it do that. With Pagan rolling and pitching eerily, it was impossible to make one. What was worse, there wasn't time to make one. An hour of this and Pagan would break up. To prove my point, a swelling billow with a smoking mane sent us lurching on our beam ends. I acted quickly. There was my rustic anchor lying on the cabin floor, lashed to the heel of the mast. If I heaved it over and let it drift out to chain's length, it should drag enough to hold the bow into the wind. It was worth a try. I groped for it in the dark. I wrapped it in the jib and bound it on the outside with the sheets to make it act as a decent drag. I tied my life jacket to the flukes to prevent it from sinking and made ready to heave it out of the hatchway into the sea. The decision to go out on deck was halved arrived at, but I had to go. In some way I got the anchor into the cockpit and crawled in beside it, lying low under the wind. I heaved it overboard, clinging to the bitter end of its line. With just my eyes over the combing, I watched it float forward. I had now to secure the line to the bow. I waited a long minute before facing the open decks. As she lay, Pagan was in a position to pound herself apart, broad on to the breaking seas. The windward bulkheads wore an uninviting look, so I jumped into the flooded lee waist. So long as I was a lee of the cabin, I could crawl. I had to be careful. The rail on the starboard side was gone, carried away by the flood. There was nothing to hold on to if I should be washed outboard. When I edged out ahead of the deckhouse into the wind, I lay flat on my face and snaked my way. All the time a line was fast to my middle and connected to a staunch object. In addition, I was gripping the knotted line strung over the deck. I was afraid that heavy seas overrunning the gunnels would raise me so that cyclonic fingers could roll me overboard but I made it safely to the stemhead and fastened my waistline to the bit. At the same time, I hitched a hasty bowline with the anchor line to the chain leading from the chain locker. As quickly as possible, I slipped back to the safety of the cabin. Pagan was yawing badly. If the anchor dragged more slowly than the boat, the bow would fetch up to the wind. I hoped she would answer soon. Just then the most severe shock of all rocked her, a gust firing point blank. Piles of water rambled roughshod athwart her to the height of the portholes. She heeled to her beam ends and creaked loud enough to hear above the storm sounds. In abject terror, I fled below. Another roller struck her more heavily than the other. For a moment, the beam planking became the deck under me. The rattle of loosened gear filled the blackness of the tight cabin. Before my little world could right itself, it shivered again beneath an impact and a moment later again, this time the sea hurtled over the starboard quarter. She had been turned half around by the force of the sea blows. At the same moment, a resounding snap of solid timber impinged on every sense in my body, froze me, stopped me short. The mast. I could tell by the feel of the wounded boat. I knew what a broken 35-foot spar could mean. I staggered faultily toward the companionway. Something heavy pounded her by the stern. Another heavy sea had hit her. Just then, and exceedingly quick, the stout little doors dissolved into a sheet of grey. With black suddenness, a lump of water shot at me. In the wink of an eye, I was sledgehammered back the full length of the cabin, rolling and twisting. 
When I stopped falling, I was under the foredeck, sitting waist-deep in rushing water, surrounded in dark. In front of me was the heel of the mast. On one side were my mattress and blankets where they had washed with the sun in-flooding. On the other were the sails where I had stowed them. In my lap, pinioning me and fighting me, was a 15-gallon water cask swept loose from its lashings. I was helpless to push it away. The surge of the knee-deep water forced it one way and another, against the mast or against my chest. In either case, it was still in my lap. When Pagan pitched, throwing her bow down, the water rushed at me and knocked me flat and covered me. Pagan took another roller across the stern. More water poured through the companionway. The water rose to my chest and raced to and fro faster in the pent space. I was knocked under more often. It was harder to sit back up. Pagan's interior was a welter of attacking wavelets. It was like a tomb. It was frightening. With an ocean to drown in, I was drowning inside my boat. I fought to get at least on deck. To be licked off by the wind and sea was more fitting than perishing under deck beams hundreds of miles from a safe shore. A providential movement of the barrel enabled me to sidle from under it and struggle from beneath the forepeak. The cabin was a nightmare. It ran thigh-deep to water. Three-quarters of my gear was adrift. The locker doors were gaping and their contents were dropping into the brine. The lockers themselves, caught by the shifting water, were in the process of ripping from their fastenings. I wavered through the morass and clambered into the brimming cockpit. Its combings were gone, but I was protected from the wind where I lay low. Pagan was rounding up nicely to the drag of the anchor. I could tell by the feel she was plunging into it dead ahead. The mast had snapped. That was definite. I could see it wrenching at the dark sky. I could feel it nearly jerk the planking off the chain plates, and I could hear it stomping on the foredeck, threatening to break through the deck. The heavy pole was held up by the shrouds and stays. It was trying helplessly to fall. Each pitch, each roll, each twist endangered the life of my boat, and lying there in the flooded cockpit, I could see it all, and I could see there was no alternative but to chop away the shrouds and free the big spar to topple into the sea. A hatchet was ready to hand in the cockpit. I bellied along my system of lifelines, tying my waistline ahead of me as I went. The decks were still awash, and the wind still in high glee. Lying on my back, I hacked at the now slack, now taut wire shrouds. Eventually one cut through. It went singing into the dark obscurity. I chopped away at the other. The stress of the wavering mast would have snapped it in a little time without my hackings, but it suddenly parted. The high, heavy pole slammed away to leeward and splashed into sea. I cringed against the deck when it went and heard rumbling and splintering after it fell. Without a mast, the little craft lay more comfortable, less affected by the powerful winds. She no longer beat into it, but rose with it and kept an even keel. I crawled back close beside the cabin and crept through the breach in the combing into the cockpit. The cabin below was a bog. My boat was terrifyingly close to sinking. Water was the depth of hip boots and was solid from the watertight bulkhead to the bow. Only the fact of the water-resistant wall kept her from foundering by the bow or stern as the water surged fore and aft with each upward lurch and toss of the bow. She had to be pumped out before more seas should crowd aboard her. But how to pump her out? My bilge pump was after the cabin and connected to its overhead. Its position was vulnerable to the wind. I dared not expose myself by using it, but Pagan 
had to be emptied somehow. There was only one recourse, the bucket. I lowered myself into the hip-deep swirl and fished around till I found it. I commenced the awkward bailing. I braced myself against the carlings or clung grimly to the hatch combing while wrestling with the bucket. I bailed till I felt green in the face and bailed on. It was easiest to stand in the centre of the cabin and heave the water into the cockpit, and when the boat rolled, the cockpit emptied through the splintered combings into the scuppers. But when it pitched, some slopped back into the cabin. Also, the forepart of the deckhouse was smashed in from the felling of the mast, and some big water came in occasionally. The three portholes to windward were out, but by a steady sweat I could gain on the threatening water. The seasickness of earlier in the storm began creeping over me again as weariness set in. After hours of bailing, the floorboards were visible. I took time to plug the dripping portholes and stow a few soggy items of gear in suitable corners. Then I dipped and poured till the boards showed dry. I ragged my watered mattress onto my bunk and prepared to fall onto it. The floor rose sickeningly as Pagan spun before a bank of water. She was pushed off her heading till she lay stern to before the seas. I leaped atop my bunk as the first seas crowded aboard and roared around the decks. Braced against the deck beams, I watched the floor fill to ten inches of water and hours fast bailing, and, tired as I was, a heartbreaking sight. Another sea had at her, and more water spilled through the companionway. I bolted out into the overflowing cockpit, hiding under the wind. A third sea overran the transom, licking at me, nearly forcing me back into the cabin. After that, Pagan broached too and appeared to be coming about into the wind. I was safer down below bailing than sitting out in the wind, and I lowered myself into the watery hold and fished my bucket. I filled and poured for endless hours. There was no consciousness directing my work. I bailed blindly and dumbly and unfeelingly. In fear of further swampings and in completest indifference, I jettisoned anything and everything that came to hand. My mattress went by the board, also blankets, tools, dishes, canned food, coconuts, clothes, water, breakers, sails, all that encumbered my bailing. I was fighting for my life in hip-deep water, lightening my boat. Any moment I expected her to dip her stern into a sea and go under. I was fighting to lighten her before that sea came if it was to come. There was no such thing as bailing just water alone. I bailed whatever I scooped up in the bucket, and I scooped and bailed till it was an effort to lift even the empty bucket. When I could no longer think or even hope, for I hadn't eaten or drunk for two days or slept, I collapsed on my bunk boards. I slept as I fell, and I slept where Pagan rolled me. I wasn't lashed down. I was totally jaded, sick and numb, I put myself in Pagan's hands. I was aware of nothing. I never knew when the hurricane ended. Maybe it was an hour before I came to awareness, or maybe half a day, or a day. I can't know. I only know that I sat up, and that it was strangely quiet, and that Pagan rolled easier than she had done in days. She was shifting on a light seaway. Outside it was dull and grey but calm. The horizon mewed lightly in the direction the hurricane had gone. The adaptable sea was already composing itself for the friendly sky on the opposite horizon.
Chapter 18. Jury Rig From the time I had collapsed on my bunk boards while the storm was yet on, I slept twice around the clock. I wakened but once in that time for a couple of hours, at an unholy hour of night, to bail out twenty inches of water in the hold. How it got there I don't know. It hadn't dawned on me that my boat was leaking. I had thought the flooded cabin was caused from a swamping while I slept, but outside there was calm. There were no seas to jump aboard. I was tired, still too tired to reason things out, so I fell again on my hard, wet bunk boards. But now I was aroused from my deep slumber by water slopping over me. The floor was flooded. It was dawn, and I was rested. I went on deck for the first time since the storm to pump the bilges and to see what my boat was like. Pagan lay in a flat calm. Smooth, crested swells of the afterstorm passed under her. The sky was blue and tranquil here on this wild field of the sea with little to indicate for one with Olympian eyes that a violent hurricane had recently passed under Pagan's near derelict hulk, heaved into view out of a sea valley onto a glassy roller. It gave me serious pause just to stand and look. What I saw was a monument to chaos, a dismasted boat is a naked sight, but one in the condition that Pagan was in, battered and bruised, limping as if wounded, is a heartbreaking sight for a seaman. I walked to the bow and stood looking back over the scarred decks of the little ghost ship. She no longer creaked and rattled from tackle and spars. Her tackle and spars were down and dragging in the sea with her rigging. The bowsprit was gone, snapped at the stem head. There was barely a rail on the boat only slivers and stubs. The staysail boom was gone, its fastenings broken at the bow. My carefully laid out deck canvas was peeled away where it had been caught between wind and sea. The forward end of the deck house was caved in, evidently by the mast and the charging seas. The splintered stub of the mast, a foot high, where the stick had twisted off, was the most unreal sight of all. Only one porthole was whole, all others were stuffed with an array of clothing. Back aft, the cockpit combings were broken away. The companionway doors were gone. For the second time, Pagan's tiller had been torn off despite the double-secure lashings I had applied before the storm, this time by the boom hurtling at the end of the topping lift. The bumpkin was snapped off, this too by the club-like boom. But most representative of the hurricane's damage were the raffled trailings of Pagan's rigging in the limpid water, they hung from the port side and trailed astern like tufts of matted hair, clutching the mast, the broken boom, the bowsprit, and the splinters of the bumpkin. She had lived through the storm and stress, and I was glad. I tried to depreciate the extent of damage, but somehow my observations weren't convincing. My little life raft was still floating astern, partly submerged. Later I learned that one of its compartments had been deflated, probably in altercation with the boom. The hold had all the earmarks of an Orgian stable, a chowderish mixture of the thousand and one articles of gear I had tucked away in the corners, which only an inimical sea could fetch out. It was a fearful sight, a quagmire, one to discourage a battery of janitors. Tools, articles of clothing, oil cans, loose line, crippled fixtures, Strips of bedding, shoes and splintered lumber lay intertwined where they had wrestled during the storm. The sea was quiet, as seas are in the calm, 
and as I looked out over it, it seemed more quiet than it had ever seemed before. My main concern was to see Pagan under sail as speedily as possible. Before I settled to my work, my thoughts turned to food. For three days and nights I had not eaten. I was ravenous. I found a quart can of tomatoes and a coconut in the debris and broke into them with the hatchet. After gulping them, I looked for water. My water beakers, I soon found, had all slipped their bungs, so that the water was either spilled or polluted. But strapped to the carling on the starboard side was a small keg of emergency water, four gallons, all I had aboard. Plenty, I thought, and took a deep drink. It would last me to Samoa, what with coconuts and other liquid foods that I could dig out later from the mess in the cabin. I went on deck and pitched into the work of rigging Pagan to sail. This, it seemed to me, was the most important consideration at the moment. There would be plenty of time later when Pagan was once more fitted out and running before the wind to clean up below and take stock of food, water and my position. For the nonce, it suffered to know, by recalling my last determined position before the heavy blow, that I was somewhere in that lonely stretch of the Pacific, between the Cook Islands and Samoa, exactly where would be easy to determine when I sought out my navigation equipment and took a sight. Before the sun was fully up, I had pulled the mast inboard and lashed it obliquely across the foredeck. I intended to carry it thus to Samoa, where I could have it re-stepped and continue my trip. The broken 35-foot mast, weighing several hundred pounds, was far too heavy and clumsy for me to set up alone. I thought of cutting off its lower 25 feet and stepping that, but even that much I knew would be too cumbersome to handle. I was looking hard and stretching my imagination hard to conceive from Pagan's derelict woods something suitable for a mast. There was the better half of the boom. I fished it in and trimmed it for abbreviated mainmast. It was small, hardly 15 feet. It was all I had. My plan, devised fitfully as I went along, was to rig Pagan as a yawl. A yawl, roughly, is much like what Pagan has been as a cutter, except that a small mizzenmast is located just behind the tiller. Rigged as a yawl, she would have a good spread of sail and would handle easily. I wanted a sprit sail, so I cleared away the remainder of the old bowsprit and reset its larger half, but without a bobstay. The former shrouds cut shorter with the hatchet, I used for the new standing rigging. I made my connections at the head of the new mast directly to the main boomdale using U-bolts. I sawed out a hole in the deck in front of the broken stump of the mast. The foreside of the stub I shaved flat with the hatchet. I did the same to the after side of the boom and knitted them together with two heavy bolts and strong lashings. I wedged in the new mast securely at the deck hole. To tighten the stays and shrouds properly I used the heavy turnbuckles at the chain plates. Thus, the storm-ravaged boom afforded a 12-foot mast, carrying a 10-foot high trysail. By midday, I had rigging up that could hold a mainsail, staysail, and jib. About this time of day, I knew Pagan was leaking. The bilge had filled since I had pumped it at dawn, proof, even to a greenhorn, of a leak. I pumped the bilge and went below. I spent an hour looking for the leak, pushing through the gear-piled floor and into the mess of the forepeak and finally decided it was somewhere below the cement-filled bilges where I couldn't see or reach it. There was nothing I could do but pump the bilges hourly and hope the seepage wouldn't grow. All afternoon I cut and sewed miniature sails from my weather-worn mainsail. 
For the mainmast, I made a trysail 10 feet high and 7 feet long. She was hoisted on the boomdale block and belayed at the staysail traveller. One inch line spliced around the mast served as rings. I sewed each ring into the luff. This sail worked loose-footed, clued up to an oar stock which I pared down for a jury boom. I worked the pump from time to time, gushing out the estimated 12 gallons of water that was seeping into the bilges every hour. As I pumped, I eyed the full circle of the horizon in hopes a ship might break over it. The hourly pumping, I felt, was a job that in time could grow distasteful. But since I was only some 400 miles from Samoa, by rough guess and assuming that the hurricane had not carried me far from where it found me, I wouldn't be at it long enough for it to matter. Staysail and jib were considerably smaller than the mainsail, looking like pillow slips when they filled away. I sheeted the staysail to the chain plates and the jib to the bit. By dusk, I had three sails in the wind. An occasional bubble showed in the wake. I lashed the broken tiller so that I made a course according to the star of due west. As yet, I hadn't found my compass, but I didn't worry about it because I knew it was somewhere in the mess below. The important thing at the moment was to get sail up and way on. Dark was drawing in. I pumped the bilges with a hundred quick strokes. Rifling in the hopeless tangle of the cabin, I came up with a can of peas. It was the first bite since dawn. I had been so busy. When I had eaten, I went on deck. Night had closed in. I sat on the cabin for hours, watching the four winds, flashlight in hand, waiting to give a signal. At a late hour, I hit the sack, or what I called the sack. I slept on my bunk boards, folded in the one blanket which I hadn't deep-sixed during the confusion of the hurricane. This was only a temporary arrangement. I figured I could tolerate it till I lifted Samoa. Daybreak found me out in the fresh morning air, shaping my last oar into some semblance of a mizzenmast. A mop handle served for the boom. I had to build onto the splintered remains of the bumpkin in order to sheet the new addition. I used rope to rig it and set my shrouds and topping left from a masthead knot tied and nailed in a groove at the peak. It was stepped just after the steering post, going through the deck and bedding into the stern post. By noon, the jigger was sheeted home and carrying wind. Pagan was converted from a cutter into a yawl and was limping downwind at an estimated one knot. For the time being, I held her on her westerly course, railed down for Samoa. The next job was to get the cabin shipshape, take account of the food and water, find the navigational instruments and grope after my position on the sea. Before my cleaning job was finished that afternoon, I learned some sobering facts. These facts so set me back that I lay awake many long hours that night. I learned, first of all, that I was completely without navigational instruments, not even a compass. Secondly, that I was practically foodless. Thirdly, that the only fresh water aboard was the four gallons in the emergency keg plus a quart of battery water I found in the hold. On my bunk, in a thin, weak line, lay the miserably few articles of food and comfort I had found. They were a bottle of ketchup, two unlabeled cans of food, and a coconut, my total larder. I could recall that during the hurricane I had heaved many articles out in a frantic haste to lighten my boat, and as I heaved I realised that items of food were going by the board, but never had I realised I was so completely tossing out my food stores. Further, I had not realised that my jugs and jars in which were capped my precious staples were being smashed and their contents mixing with the sea. In the desperateness of the hour, 
there had been no time to so thoroughly think out the possibilities and probabilities of my actions. Beside my scanty food supply lay my sextant, or rather what was left of it. It had once been a fine, precision instrument, but now it was a twisted piece of junk. The index mirror was broken off completely. The telescope was gone. The alidade was bent at a rakish andle and jammed so that it couldn't be moved. The arc was rippled beyond any dreams of repair with means at hand. Close by lay the compass, what was left of it that is. The glass was smashed and the precious liquid had spilled. The guts of the instrument were lost in the disarray of the cabin and it was the more useless in that it was torn from its gimbals and they weren't to be found. During the day I found no charts, no sailing directions, no light lists, not even my carefully kept log of the voyage. These articles I had always kept in the chart rack beside my bunk. When the cabin filled, the rushing water had licked them out. The tidying process disclosed considerable damage to the interior of my boat. The icebox, lockers, galley, sink board, chart rack, ladder and floorboards had been torn from their fastenings. They were a mass of amorphous lumber. The crushing weight of the twisting water in the hold had chewed down all my fixtures except the stout bunk. There were few exceptions to this destruction. Built into the forward wall of the deck house high up was a small elongated cabinet. Of all the inside furnishings, it was alone dry. In it were 20 cartons of cigarettes, which I was taking to Mary's dad, some matches and my navigation pocket watch. The cigarettes were useless because I had never smoked, and near the cabinet, on the starboard bulkhead, just under the portholes, there clung the bookshelf, in it a frowsy mixing of wet pages and crumpled bindings. Pangs of uneasiness set in. I tried to recall every important tenant a seaman should know for such times as he is lost on the sea and foodless and waterless. Once, during the war, I was in a lifeboat for a short time, but it had been infinitely different from this. There had been the company of 20 men. We had a regular food and water ration handed round by the old scoundrel, our captain, and we had our officers with gold braid enough to defy the devil to inspire us. The greatest difference between the lifeboat and Pagan was that in the lifeboat we knew we would be rescued. The army and navy were looking for us, so we enjoyed ourselves teasing the sharks and regretting we couldn't feed them. That night on Pagan, I detailed for myself a strict regimen to be followed to the latter. Food and water were to be carefully doled. I suggested a pint of water a day as a ration and a few nibbles of the food, something to take the edge off hunger. With Samoa so near, I wouldn't be sorely pressed. A matter of two weeks' discomfort, then port, and the luxury of refitting my boat for the last leg of the voyage. The date was September 9th five days since the start of the hurricane. I was lost. That was definite. Five days ago my position, according to memory, had been 13 degrees 21 minutes south, 162 degrees 40 minutes west. I had then been a bosun's roar from the Surovov Islands, a low, nearly barren, uninhabited coral reef. After a long calculation I figured I was somewhere south and west of the Surovs, somewhere under their lee, not close enough to bother or to risk looking for them. Better leave them be, I thought. Do the safe thing. Go on west to Samoa. I guessed the distance to Samoa at about 400 miles. To be on the safe side, I put it at 450. Actually, it was 480. I estimated my progress with sails at 25 miles per day. And from what I remembered of the pilot chart, 
there was a current push of from 0 to 20 miles per day on the keel. I conservatively planned on 5 miles a day help from the current, which would jump my daily coverage to 30 miles. By simple arithmetic, I supposed that in 16 or 18 days I should come upon Samoa, provided I was in the right latitude. If I wasn't, then I would pass by it into landless westward waters. The closest sizable land if I missed Samoa was Fiji, some 600 miles to the southwest. I made up my mind not to miss Samoa, to press every faculty of boat and man to find it. Rigidly rationed as I was in food and water, and at my slow speed, I didn't dare miss it. Determined to be as circumspect as possible with my steering, to keep a ready eye for all signs of land and commerce on the sea, especially to husband very closely every morsel and drop of my edibles. There was to be absolutely no physical exertion aside from pumping out. If my body was to stand the gaff of a 16-day fast, there must be minimum loss of energy with plenty of sleep and rest. Also, I must attempt to add to my meagre provisions. I would fish and perhaps catch seabirds. I thought grimly on each possible precaution that would lengthen the supply of food over the next 18 days. Before me sat the two cans of food, the bottle of ketchup and the coconut. Since I had worked the whole day and was tired and my body was in pressing need of nourishment, I decided to bolster my flagging flesh and spirits with one of the cans of food. Doing so was contrary to the strict ration I had set for myself, but I needed backing up after three days of gruelling work. Maybe I was short on resistance and couldn't face up to the ration, but I like to think that there was a real need for that can of food. It would take at least a can. My body felt the need of two or three cans. I hatcheted open one of the cans and found it to be peas. I took them out into the cool night to dine on the deck house to eat and watch for a chance light. They were delicious beyond belief. There was a sweetness and delicacy I never knew peas could have. I chewed them to a fine gruel before swallowing them remembering Captain Bly's advice to his starving men in their open boat. The night was fresh. Stars were on the march across the heavens, leading Pagan West. I checked and steadied the tiller. The bow was set on a planet just off the end of Scorpio, giving a nice westerly course. When the planet should fade below the horizon, I could use a southern cross, keeping it on the port beam. A spanking breeze welled up from the south. The mast was bent slightly from plum. I was making good my 30 miles a day clip. I pumped the bilges, took a last look at the unbroken horizon and went below. Sitting on my bunk, I had a light nip of water before hitting the sack. I thought that the best method to conserve water would be to drink only when thirsty and then just a sip, but taking care never to consume more than a pint a day. With that ration, I had water for 32 days. I fitted the bung to my precious keg of water and rolled in for the night. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage.
If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. And there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews, and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.